G'day mates, and welcome to an all new episode of Pottywood Down Under. I'm one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always is... Well that'll be me, Andrew Roger Carson, but I was going to ask why in the hell have you gone for an Australian accent? And I think I figured it out, but it's going to be very ironic very shortly. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, it's all to do with the uh, the film that I was watching last night, which we'll get onto in a second. But first, we have to have our early start of the show banter, really, don't we? Bit of banter, yes. And uh, I want to start off a little bit of a sombre note. This show is for you, Ryan Sakoda, my good friend uh, who passed away just recently. I know it's kind of a growing trend for the last couple of weeks where someone has passed away in my life, but, you know, they couldn't help it. But Ryan Sakoda. Um, American wrestler to some, great friend to me. Uh, thank you very much for all your friendship, Ryan, and we'll miss you. Yeah, bye con Dios, Ryan. And I also want to give uh, this bantery section to give a shout out to Mandy and the Nerd Herd. I know that you are listening and you listen every week, apparently, between all of you. We absolutely love you all. So there's a shout out for you. Yes, and I'd also like to give a shout out to Belgium who apparently are one of the the biggest countries that listen to this podcast. So if you're listening to us in Belgium, uh, head over to Facebook and Twitter, at Poddywood, and uh, say hi back. Hi. You know that's just Jean-Claude Van Damme listening into the shit we were giving on the Street Fighter episode. Possibly. But, you know, at least now he's doing it without the aid of cocaine. Yes, but he's not going to like us when we get to the anniversary round today. But first, (laughs) let's get round to... Are what's in the box from last week, which was Greg McLean's crocodile movie Rogue from 2007. Did yeah. you watch this, Steve? Of course I watched this, Andrew. I'm a professional and I take my job seriously. Uh, yes, I watched this anti-crocodile Dundee movie last night um, in uh, in bed with the missus, as uh, as I am wont to do. On a uh, on a night before we record, yeah. Now I was coming into this thinking, okay, this is going to be another kind of animal slasher movie. You know, you've seen loads of them before, and there's there's different kind of things. You know, it's a dog or or like a pack of creatures or whatever piranhas or a shark or a shark. Usually, it's a shark. You know, something like open water or something like that. And the setup is pretty simple. You've got a boat full of tourists in the Australian outback, and they're going on a river cruise, spotting crocodiles. Uh, they notice a flare going up, and when they investigate, they end up getting trapped on a small island, which is rapidly shrinking due to the incoming tide. And they're being hunted by a giant crocodile, like a 40-foot thing. Now, it's a survival movie, and they get picked off one by one, as you'd imagine. Uh, Very subtle first kill. Very. It's a rather bloodless film for the whole. Um, There's a few shots, and I was watching the extended version. There's several versions of this. I was watching the extended version as well. So what's different, I'm not entirely sure from the uh, other cuts. But yeah, you've got... A little bit of blood when a couple of the characters get hit. And also when Hollywood breaks its major rule of killing the dog. I'm not even going to go for spoilers here. The dog ends up dead. Well, it's an Australian film. It's not a Hollywood film. Yeah, but you don't kill the dog. Uh, yeah. Have you ever gone through exploitation films? No one is safe. You don't kill the dog! 
Okay. Well, the dog got his ass eaten by a crocodile. Yeah, that's actually probably the only gross bit in it. The dog runs off the tunnel. This is way later in the film, by the way. The dog runs off down this tunnel and it gets... You just hear it go... And and then the croc comes in with the dog in its mouth and then it starts to munch it right in front of the camera, which is really gross. Thank God, because from that dog noise, I thought he'd just stepped on some Lego. <laughs> <laughs> ah, mate, that's just Lego. You'll be fine. I was actually wondering around old old last night just talking in an Australian accent though. Um But you've got uh, you've got a pretty good cast. You've got a pre fame, I suppose, because he's not really famous anymore. Uh he he isn't really. You know, Sam Worthington. You know, he came out and everyone thought he was gonna be huge and he did Terminator and Avatar and Clash of the Titans and then has kind of vanished. Well, he's headlining Avatar too. Yeah, hopefully that'll put him back on top because you know I like the guy. You know, he seems to be all right. You know, I'm not trying to denigrate him. I'm just saying that after those three films, he just kind of vanished out of public consciousness. Um, and you've also got Radha Mitchell, who was kind of getting attacked for the second time in Australia um, <laughs> after she, because this this was a couple of years after Pitch Black, yes, which was filmed in Cuba PD. This one was filmed in the Northern Territories as well, kind of like where most of the, the crocodiles exist. It was filmed in a man-made location, though, uh, which was which was kind of nice. So the island set piece where most of the movie takes place, that was all built for the movie. So it was the crocodile lair later on. And no, I thought it was quite good. I thought the pacing was pretty good. It keeps things moving along pretty sharply. There's a bit of the beginning kind of drags a little bit, but it's not really that noticeable. And a lot of the stuff that goes on with the crocodile is done in a very Jaws way where it's all kind of hidden. Yes. Uh, no attention gets drawn to it until the latter part of the movie. It does a, there's a couple of issues that I probably have with like the nature of a crocodile, really. Like, would a crocodile go... Uh, and live in a, a really cold cave underground when it's cold-blooded, you know, okay. stuff like uh, that. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. It's it's entertainment the other day. It was. I, I thought that the, the ending, when it's in its actual lair, I thought it was incredibly suspenseful scene, very mm-hmm. well done. And, you know, for a CGI crocodile, it is really believable. Uh, yeah, they did a really good job on it, both the movement, uh, modelled by Weta Workshop, so, you know, you're going to get at least a quality model to work with. But yeah, the animation looked good. The the mat the matting looked grey, a little bit waxy. But given the budget, it's you know I th- I thought it was absolutely superb for it. Perhaps not as suspenseful a movie as I would have liked. I guess you could kind of class it as a PG thirteen, really. I-, I think it would go for that kind of twelve certificate because it is not that bloody no it really isn't you know and, and it can pass as something that probably you know young teenagers could go and see and i'm surprised actually uh two names you did not mention mm-hmm. uh one aussie horror icon john jarrett known for his role as the killer in wolf creek yeah uh played russell the uh guy who went to put his ashes in a lick full of crocodiles who let's face facts is actually a really creepy character i don't know if he was actually instructed to come across that way but he just felt like a bit of a creepy perv Oh yeah, he he was moving in on that mother whose husband had just been eaten, pretty much in the next scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
It was pretty creepy. Uh, and the daughter of that woman is Mia Wozikowska, who was Alice in Wonderland in a very young role. I think it was her first ever role. Yes, that's right. I was watching it thinking, I know her from somewhere, but I didn't actually look on IMDb. It never really came up. But yes, now you mentioned it. Yes, she did. I, th- I believe it was her first role as well. Yeah. And uh, I remember because when I did uh, do a bit of research into the film, from not just IMDb, but other sources as well, because I'm a professional. And don't take IMDb for their word. <laughs> apparently, you dick. <laughs> but yes, apparently Sam Worthington in the scene where he's uh, in the water with the crocodiles. Apparently, there were real crocodiles around, and he was freaking out, good style. And I believe they actually filmed that reaction while he was in the water. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me yeah. because yeah. if they are actually filming in the northern territories, then oh, how do they really know that there isn't some kind of great big prehistoric leviathan which isn't lurking just underneath the surface getting ready to munch down and you're like you know it's like sulfur i know Um, basically there is one thing though that i would like to to add usually in these kind of movies pretty much ever since you ended up with halloween way back in 19 whenever it was um you had the final girl yes this is only one of the few times that i've there's been a final guy Equal opportunities. Yeah, Australia's I, got it done. Yeah, because the lead, I can't, I can't remember his name because he was basically just a, a blank slate throughout the whole thing for me, pretty much. <laughs> Michael uh, Vartan. That's the one. Um, he survives to the end. He's the one that ends up dealing with the the croc. And, you know, you could say, oh, it's just a male hero yet again. Well, yeah, but in these kind of movies, it is almost traditionally a female hero. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. But I've, I'm going to go on record. I actually really liked this movie. I think it was just... A really good entertainment. It's not Crawl. Crawl, I think, is still the best crocodile movie that's ever been made that came out a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, but I'd match Rogue right up there, as well as um, another movie called Blackwater. Which was another Australian film that was released the same year, but it was only the second of three crocodile-based movies. The The other one was Primeval. Oh, yeah. That's yes. Of, um Dominic Purcell, I believe. I think so, yeah. But all three of them I came out the same year. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, they, they love their crocodile movies. I know, they do. Just ask Paul Hogan. I like Paul Hogan. Well, we're going to chat about that a bit later on. So, yes, that's the Rogue Review. Would you ask people to go and see it? Yeah, because like I say, it's, it's a more or less inoffensive animal slasher movie. It's, uh, it's relatively bloodless. It does have a fair bit of tension to it. The characters are actually acting in this more or less sensibly, given the situation. Yes, totally out of the genre. Normally they're doing the most stupid things, apart from the guy who decides, oh, you know what, we're going to go over this rope that can only hold one person that's got one person already on it. Yeah, he's the exception, but then again, he does get munched in like the very next shot. Uh, yes. But yeah, all the other ideas that they come up with are absolutely sound and logical for that given situation. Yes. So, Apart from finally getting out of the water and then lying right next to the water as soon as you've reached the island. <laughs> I would have been in the centre of that island, waving a tree at any crocodile. He decides, oh, I've swam out, now I'm just going to lay here. I might as well have my leg dangling in the water. Well, one last thing before we do move on and get away with this. That was another thing which was kind of getting me is the fact that crocs can live in and out of water. So why the hell was this thing not crawling up onto the island and having a go at them? They can still move fast on land. Oh, maybe he's, a fa- maybe he's a fan of plot. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> I'm not play. supposed to die until the third act. <sighs> yes, he'd like a bit of pleading. Yeah. Okay, well, that is Rogue. Go and check it out. And I guess it's time to move on to our anniversaries round. 
watch them again all of the time Oh, we get them on Prime for free But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary Reverend! <laughs> Very good. Blazing Saddles, yet again. I like Blazing Saddles, see me. It's, it could never be made these days, but I just think it's hilarious. Yes, and, and some of these movies in our anniversaries maybe shouldn't have been made in their day either. One of them definitely should have. But we're going to go back 40 years. Can you believe, Steve? Mm, yes, I did. 40 years ago this week, uh, the movie Mommy Dearest was released. Now, if you don't know what this movie is, it's the depiction of the adoptive upbringing of Christina Crawford by her depicted as very abusive mother, Joan Crawford, the famous actress. Yes, I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it. Um, like, I've heard that the two actresses involved just generally antagonised each other and hated each other throughout the production. Well, there's a few stories around it. I mean, it was directed by Frank Perry. Uh, some may, people may know him as the director of Last Summer or David and Lisa. You won't because you've never heard of them. No, because I'm a but Philistine. The, the one thing that everyone kind of knows about this movie, it is the movie that gave Faye Dunaway her notoriety as being incredibly rude and unprofessional. <laughs> now, this is basically just from accounts that I've read, interviews that I have heard, uh, people on cast and crew, and there's a group on Facebook called Crew Stories that I go on where people just talk about all their experiences in it. And sure enough, there was not a lot of people who did like Faye Dunaway's attitude. Faye Dunaway, uh, basically, she was the only person that Bette Davis despised more than the woman she was playing in this movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> That is true. You should listen to some of the interviews like on Carson that she gives. Faye Dunaway actually refuses to talk about this film in any interviews or anything. She felt that it was a surefire award winner for her. And when people were going, I mean, it is seriously overacted. Seriously overacted. It is worth seeing just for Faye Dunaway, uh, Steve Forrest, Diana Scarwood's performances, they kind of push all the way around to great because they're so over the top. So there's the infamous no more wire hangers ever scene, which you can find on YouTube. Trust me, it's it's just out there. But people started going to the movie uh, with wire hangers. <laughs> and basically, when that scene came out, they were all like holding up their wire hangers in the cinemas. And Paramount, who was the studio behind it, they kind of latched onto this and thought, oh, we can now reclass this as kind of a, a campy comedy, you know, uh, <laughs> the kind of John Walters would do. Brilliant oh, marketing strategy, oh, by God, the way, yeah. if their films are terrible. But apparently Faye Dunaway was so pissed off about it um, that, yeah, she refuses to talk about it. I know she was on um, Inside the Actors Studio once and James Lipton was trying to get her to talk about it and she was very dismissive about it. But yeah. Um, it's infamous for the wrong reasons. I could just picture them doing the wire hanger thing uh, at a drive-through, and all of a sudden there's a lightning strike, <laughs> and just <laughs> and just everyone just getting zapped in their cars. Yes, but Mummy Dearest, it, it is kind of gone all the way around to so terrible it's great. Uh, it's worth seeing just for that. So let's go back thirty-five years. Okay, what we got? What we got? What we got? Sticking with the theme of this week. Can you believe, Steve, Crocodile Dundee is 35 years old this week? Yay! With one of... I I really like that music. 
Oh, yes. I mean, the the music itself is, is iconic. Oh, yeah. Everyone knows that tune. It's like the Terminator or the Godfather. It's, it's just got one of those tunes that you know, like Gremlins. Everyone knows how to do that theme tune. Yeah. And this was directed by Peter Feynman, who has not actually did a lot. I mean, he only really directed stuff like the Paul Hogan show. I wonder how he landed that gig then. God, God knows. But um, it was uh, Paul Hogan's kind of transference into the mainstream, uh, especially his, his introduction to Hollywood, and it, no movie did it bigger. This was the second biggest box office hit of 1986, behind only Top Gun. Mm. Right? And we all remember how big Top Gun was. Right? This film was behind that. So as I say, it launched Paul Hogan, uh, although kind of every other role he's done since has basically been Crocodile Dundee light. Yeah, they they have all been the same kind of thing. Like, uh, like it's Mick Dundee as a cowboy. It's Mick Dundee as an angel. It's I didn't mind Lightning Jack though. I've got a soft spot for that movie. Oh, oh, oh! Shut up! I kind of like that movie. It's a guilty pleasure of mine. Yes, it's also something that is scribbled out on Cuba Gooding Jr.'s CV. Oh yeah, and he did Snow Dogs. So yeah, and he still holds that higher than uh, Lightning Jack. Uh, but the good news about it, uh, do you remember this came out on TV for the first time on Christmas Day on BBC One? And it was the biggest Christmas Day premiere in the UK uh, for BBC One. And still to this day, 35 years later, it is the most watched film to ever be shown on BBC to this day. I bet it was edited to buggery as well, wasn't it? Oh, it was. Yeah. What are you going to talk on that, my man? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, yeah, that we, classic 80s editing that the BBC used to do. Well, not just the BBC, because Robocop came out on ITV, oh, and that God. was just... That is the king, okay? If if anyone out there wants to try and track down the, the ITV-edited version of Robocop from, like, the early 90s, oh, you are in for an incredibly badly dubbed treat. Oh, but it, Forget it's Jones. absolutely amazing. Yeah, forget Jones. I even once but, called him Airhead. Airhead. <laughs> oh, it it is genius. They should release that version of the movie on the next Blu-ray release of RoboCop. Oh, they should yeah. do the same with Coming to America. It should be an optional extra on all of these DVDs. Uh, to be honest, Crocodile Dundee. It's the greatest fish out of water movie ever made. Yeah. Okay. And Croc out of water. Croc out of water. There you go. It's even yeah. better. Uh, I actually owned a VHS copy of this. And it was the first ever VHS video I bought. Get that bit of history. Mm. And I remember it had a fault on the tape halfway through when he's talking to the two prostitutes that for some reason the entire movie just went hazy for like five minutes. <laughs> I was so annoyed. Uh, it's a wonderful story. Uh, Paul Hogan is great in it. I don't think he's ever been better than this initial movie. It is pure 80s nostalgia. The music, yeah. as we say, is an iconic. And speaking of music... Uh, Michael Hutchins and In Excess actually invested into the movie to kind of help reduce paying more tax in Australia, and the movie ended up making millions. So nice. The amount of money they must have made from that is incredible. Yeah, but that's right. kind of like what uh, George Harrison did when he was investing in um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, not the Holy exactly. Grail, um, Life of Brian. Yeah, Life of Brian and Holy Grail, yeah. and all the other movies from Man Made. Let's go back 25 years can you believe, Steve? Mm-hmm. The first time that our man from Brussels, Jean-Claude Van Damme, got behind the camera was on a movie called The Quest, which was basically Bloodsport 
in uh, in old times with an inexplicable Michael Caine. It w- it wasn't Michael Caine, wasn't it? Michael Caine. I could have sworn it was. No, Michael it was Roger Caine. Moore. Oh right. Oh well, that's me looking like a tit yes. then, isn't it? Yes. Uh, the only other time that Van Damme has ever got behind the camera since was on, uh, I guess, one of his director DVD efforts called Eagle Path. Mm. No, I haven't seen it either. But this was Roger Moore's least favourite movie. Uh, he did not like the production. He felt it was massively mismanaged. Didn't like Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, didn't like one of the producers on the movie as well. And on top of that, he didn't get the billing that he was promised. He found out that his name in the credits was a lot lower than it was actually advertised. So he wasn't happy. Frank Dukes, as in put up your Dukes, mm-hmm. uh, he actually sued Jean-Claude Van Damme over the story credit because he claims that they both came up with it together in 1991. Uh, he did actually get the story credit under the Writers Guild, but I believe he lost the court case. Uh, so that kind of ended that long friendship that they had ever since Bloodsport. And in, in reference to the production, it was drastically bleeding money out of it, apparently, from what I've read on Cruise Stories. And uh, the crew was asked to work for free, which was met with laughter. <laughs> I'm not surprised, to be honest. And threats to strike, and the money pretty much appeared straight away <laughs> Okay, to carry on. If you really, really believe in something and you've got, you know, and you and you feel like doing something that's charitable, then yeah, work for free. But no, if you're there in a professional environment, you're getting paid. And if you have to down tools, then you down tools as far as I'm concerned. No, no, you get paid when you do work because uh, I've been there when I haven't been paid after doing work. And it's a pain in the ass, quite frankly. And it really, really makes you hate the people that are involved in the production. So yes, at least you got a DVD out of it. Yeah, but um, two the music, DVDs. Yeah, uh, two plus. Um, the music's actually really good in this. I did like the music in the movie. That's the one thing that I do have to say was really good. I did uh, see it, but I've seen it so long ago that the only thing I can remember out of the whole thing is Roger Moore in a hot air balloon trying to escape. That's it. <laughs> yes, doing a Michael Caine impression apparently. Yeah. Going back, finally, we're going 15 years. Adam Sandler's movie Click was released. Mm. Yes. Well, it was directed by Frank Carassi, who directed um, The Much Superior, The Wedding Singer, The the Water Boy, and that r- pretty bad version of Around the World in 80 Days with Steve Coogan and Jackie Chan in it. Mm. Uh, I mean, Click, it's memorable for farting in David Hasselhoff's face. That is the best scene of the movie for me. Apart from Christopher Walken doing his dancing, as I think it must be contracting any movie that Christopher Walken's in, and Henry Winkler doing that coin trick. But for me, it really reminds me of that Goosebumps story that had the exact same title of Click. I don't know this Goosebumps story. I've never read or seen any Goosebumps stuff. Oh, well, I have kids, so I like scaring the shit out of them, so I'd read them Goosebumps. Well, I, I think this was round about the time that this was the definite start of the downslide for Adam Sandler. It had been leading up to it for some time because his stuff had been hit or missed, like Mr. Deeds. But it was still getting like theatrical releases and people were still going to see it quite well. I think with this, this was the just after the tipping point And everything after that has just been steadily crap and crap and crap and crap and crap. He's making money, no doubt about that. You know, he's getting paid from Netflix to take all his mates on vacation. So, you know, you can't fault the guy for doing that. He's making money. 
he's putting out films. It's just that they all nowadays are just heavily corporate sponsored pieces of crap. Yeah, well, you have your lovers and haters, and I can tolerate Adam Sandler in some movies, and some I'm just like, why did I watch that? Like Jack and Jill. Happy Gilmore. I love Happy Gilmore. I think he's great in Happy Gilmore. Oh, yeah. I think the Click is one of those movies yeah. that kind of falls in between. I mean, yeah. the, the stuff about this, it does have a great cast in it, you know, of all people that you really do want to watch, especially Christopher Walken. Anytime you get him in anything, it's worth watching, whether he's playing a, a nutcase or just being Christopher Walken. Um, Same thing, but, isn't it? <laughs> it could be. could be. Uh, Adam Sandler, you know, he, he did a pretty good job on this. You know, it's a, it's a family movie. It's a good family movie with a family message. Kate Beckinsale's good in it. Uh, the little girl Tatum McCann, she did a solid job in it as well. Um, it, it's just one of those films that just quickly gets forgotten about, kind of like Mr. Deeds, mm. um, kind of like Fifty First Dates. You know, either he has uh, a real big hit like The Wedding Singer or Happy Gilmore, or, you know, he has these mass produced ones that, you know, just do a job of getting a laugh and that's it. Or he goes down the third route of stuff like Uncut Gems, where you think, oh my god, he can actually act. He's remembered how to act. Maybe he'll do another... Oh no, he's not doing another one now. He's he's... he's great. When he he comes out of his comedy routines, I mean, Punch Drunk Love, I Mm. think, is one of the best films I'd ever seen uh, him do. Uh, he did another film with Don Cheadle as well called Rain Rain On Me or Rain Over Me. Rain Over Me, yeah. Rain uh... Over Me, which was, you know, it was good. And, you know, he plays that stuff really well when he wants to and then other times you know he'll he'll stick to what pays the bills yeah yeah but yeah that's the anniversaries for this week steve okay well now that that's out of the way i think it's time to get our guest out don't you yes today we have a real treat an amazing veteran actor with over 200 stage film and tv productions spanning a 50 plus year career now not many people can say their first professional acting role was in shakespeare's othello and not many can claim they were world-travelled in theatre before they even made an on-screen role. He's won numerous awards, including the Los Angeles Drama Critics Award for A Flea in Her Ear and The Last Meeting of the Knights of the White Magnolia, as well as his performance in Sam Shepard's True West. In television, he did the rounds, appearing in such cult shows as Kojak, Police Squad, Starsky and Hutch and The A-Team, among so many others. He would appear in motion pictures such as Breaking Away, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, before landing an iconic role as Sergeant John Taggart in the Beverly Hills Cop franchise. During the 80s, he appeared in the first two movies, noticeably absent and missed from the third, but appearing in the much-loved classic Midnight Run as Marvin Dorfler, uncouth bounty hunter rival to Robert De Niro in what has become a classic character. Many roles would follow in the 80s and 90s in movies and TV, racking up an incredible list of roles, including Ben Affleck's directorial debut, Gone Baby Gone, where he would reteam with Ed Harris from his stage days. Still working an impressive career today in recent movies, Death in Texas and a few upcoming projects, and having appeared in no less than six movies in the last two years alone, joining us today from Colorado is John Ashton. Good morning, John. Good morning. How are you? We're doing very well. Yeah, thank you very much for Good. joining us. Good. How's the weather there? It's cold here. It's <laughs> it's typical British weather, i.e. grey, wet, and miserable. Oh, yeah, yes. I know. I, I've been there for it, and I played golf in it over there. And, <laughs> and Manchester and a few places, and then Belfast. and Yep, yeah, I know the weather very well. 
Yeah. It doesn't get much better, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's why they sell so much Guinness over there, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's the petrol you can't get. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, John, again, thank you for joining us. As usual with the show, it's impossible to stretch the entire length of an impressive career. And we'd probably get five shows out of your career alone. So we hope to do some justice today by jumping in and out. And I think we have to start where you started, I believe, at the tender young age of 12 years old, when you began your journey into acting. Now, where did that inspiration come from? Uh, How did that lead to your first professional stage debut, uh, I believe, just two years later in Othello in Connecticut? Well, I I was basically a juvenile delinquent growing up. I grew up in a pretty rough neighborhood outside of Hartford, Connecticut, and and uh, I was getting in a lot of trouble, and uh, my my parents were going to send me to a military academy at one point, and uh, I, you know, we were stealing cars and doing stuff, and, and all dumb stuff. I mean, nothing, you know, really uh, terrible, but uh, I, I I was getting in a lot of trouble, and one day my director of my high school uh, theater program uh, came up to me in the hallway, and he said, "Would you like to do a play?" And I said, "Sure." And uh, it happened to be Oklahoma, and uh, I played Judd Fry, and uh, I won Best Actor that year in my high school, and and I I, I really uh, enjoyed the experience, and it really uh, kind of branched me out into thinking about better things in my life. And shortly after that, um, I got uh, an offer to do uh, Othello at the Hartford Stage Company. And it was their premier production in 1964, I believe that was. Uh, and um, I did it. I had two lines I play. I carried a torch, and, and I, I still remember the lines. A messenger from the galleys. Here's more <laughs> news. Those are my two lines. And uh, anyway, um, I, I, I just remember sitting in the theater one night and uh, it was about two o'clock in the morning and we were rehearsing and I was just sitting out in the audience watching the other actors perform and and uh, I, I just thought to myself, you know, I could be out getting in a lot of trouble right now and instead I'm sitting here doing something I really enjoy and uh, I said, I think, I, I think I'd like to do this. Right after that, uh, I did the uh, advice to the undergraduate speech and... In high school, which you give lousy advice to the undergraduates, it's a it's a funny speech, and uh, the 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 place was crowded, and it was right during the Vietnam War, and and I'll never forget thinking, looking out over the audience and watching them laugh and enjoy themselves, and and I just said to myself, wow, you know, this is this is a, what a great opportunity to be able to take people away from all the crap that's going on in the world and, and let them escape for a couple of hours and enjoy themselves and, and have a little escapism. And, and I said to myself, this is my social work. This is what I want to do. Uh, I, I want to take people away from, from you know, all the horrid things that are happening and, and just to be able to take them to a place that they, they, they can go into for a couple of hours and, uh, so I, that, I made up my mind then, and uh, I went to a small college in Ohio and played football there for two years, and I got an offer to do summer stock at, in Cape Cod, and uh, I was married at the time and had a four-month-old baby, and uh, I went to Cape Cod and did summer stock 
for $25 a week in room and board. And, uh, <laughs> and I did four plays in Summerstock there. And, and, uh, I was, I was sitting there one night and uh, one afternoon or whatever. And, and, and I said, you know, I could be the greatest actor in the world, but who's going to know it in Ohio, you know? So I, 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 uh, transferred to USC. I got accepted to USC in the theater department and, uh, got the Irene Ryan scholarship and, uh, I had no money and I, I, I got a hold of the university and said, I'd love to go, but I, I, I can't afford it. I have no money. And I said, can I wait a year? And they said, sure. And so I, I went to Chicago with my wife at the time and baby, and I worked on the freight docks for a year and a half in Chicago and saved enough money to get to L.A. And I got a U-Haul trailer and a, a one-and-a-half-year-old baby, and I pulled into Hollywood and stayed at some cheap hotel and, <laughs> and uh, you know, I started school at USC and, and uh, you know. Well, <laughs> it... Theatre was obviously, it was a huge passion for you, and as an actor, I can understand why. And so you travelled with this theatre shoot from USC, uh, like you say, across Europe, uh, about appearing in about 15 productions at the time. Now, Mm -hmm. this travel, did it help to broaden your performances? Uh, Did this exposure to different cultures at such a young age add some extra dimensions to your skill set? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was no better training in the world. We did those shows in repertory. We 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 did one-nighters in Germany and Hamburg and Stuttgart and Munich and Berlin and 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 we traveled on train and and I was playing the drums in one of the shows. So I had a set of drums and I was carrying those drums on the train every day. And, I mean, it was a hassle, I'll tell you. And, uh, you know, and every hey, we do the show at night, get up in the morning, get the train to the next place, rehearse our entrances and exits, and then go out, have a bite to eat, come back, do the play, get up the next morning, get on the train, go to the next town. It, it was an incredible experience. And then uh, from Germany, uh, we went to Cambridge, England, and uh, did a couple of shows there. And then uh, after Cambridge, we went to London, and uh, we were at uh, uh, Laurence Olivier's uh, old theater uh, on the East End. Or I think it's the East End or West End. Um, uh, uh, what the heck was the name of the theater? George something Theater. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, but it was where Olivier had a small... Anyway, we did a couple of plays there, and I wasn't in one of the plays, Um so the nights I had off, I would go see productions in London. I went to see Olivier do Merchant of Venice, which was one of his last stage performances, I believe. Uh, and he played Shylock, and he was unbelievable. And I was just, I was like in the third row, and he made his entrance, it just blew me away. And I was just uh, ecstatic. And then I went to the, uh, I went to see uh, Gilgood and Richardson do Home, uh, at the Sloan Square Theater in London. And um, and then I went back. This was amazing. Uh, I went backstage after the play was over, and I wanted to meet Olivier or uh, Gilgood and Richardson. And, and uh, I went backstage, and unlike America, I mean, here's these two iconic actors, and, and there was nobody backstage, absolutely nobody. And I walked into the stage door, and the stage manager said, can I help you? And I said, 
well, I'd, I'd like to meet Sir John and uh, Sir Ralph. And, and, they, and he says, come with me. And he brought me right to their dressing room. And I sat <laughs> there. I sat oh there for 40. God. I, yeah, I sat there for 45 minutes with them, you know, and just talked about acting. And, and it was just, and I couldn't believe. In America, when you got two stars like that, you can't get into them. You know, you, I mean, they, but in London, they, they treat artists differently there. You know, you're not a... You're an artist. You're not a star. You're an artist, and and uh, it was just a great experience. And and I'll never forget. Uh, at the end of our conversation, we're talking about acting and stuff like that. And uh, Ralph Richardson said to me, "Well, it beats pumping petrol, doesn't it?" <laughs> it's, it's very true. Yeah. yeah. I said, "Boy, those are my words of wisdom from Sir Ralph Richardson. It beats pumping petrol, doesn't it?" <laughs> so, uh, from London, we went to Edinburgh to the Arts Festival, and we were there six weeks, uh, and that's where we did 15 different plays and repertory, and uh, I mean, literally, uh, we did a play at noon, two, four, six, eight, ten, and midnight, and uh, wow. I was I was in almost every one of the shows, and uh, we did all American, American plays, you know, Huey, Eugene O'Neill, stuff like that. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was amazing that, I mean, literally I would go out on the stage sometimes and I would have to look at the set to, to remind myself what play we were in, you know? And, uh, but I mean, it was the greatest experience. And then from Edinburgh, we went to Greenock, Scotland, and, uh, we, we performed there for a couple of weeks and did about four different plays and repertory there. And, uh, I mean, the learning experience and, and, and it was just incredible. And then I came back to the States and started doing plays in L.A. So, Well, yeah, I mean, in, I believe, 1973, uh, you landed what I believe was your first on-camera role uh, in a, a somewhat controversial horror movie called An Eye for an Eye. Uh, noticeably, <laughs> uh, this would also be one of the many times you would appear in the role of a police officer throughout your career. All right, uh, right. So, so was this... Uh, uh, a movie you had to audition for. How how did you land this role in this certain picture? Uh, one of the professors at uh, at uh, USC, uh, his his nephew directed that, so he got me into the into the movie. He and, and Larry Brown, who directed it, uh, had seen me do a couple of plays at USC, and no, he just offered me the role, and uh, it was a pretty strange strange movie but uh and you know i've met a couple of actors that have seen it that said you know we had to remake that because the idea of the movie was pretty cool but i think we did it on a two dollar budget or something it was pretty low pretty low budget <laughs> i've worked on lower budgets than that yeah oh yeah yeah i know i i listen i did theater in la and i had to pay to do it <laughs> I was in a theater. I, I, that's no kidding. I was in the Company of Angels, which uh, I won a Drama Critics Award. There it was a, it was a really nice uh, equity waiver theater in Los Angeles. Uh, it was a good group of uh, of actors, and uh, we we literally paid twenty dollars a month to to belong to the theater. So. <laughs> I guess if you're doing that, you, you've got to really believe in the productions and the company, haven't you? Well, yeah. I mean, it was great experience, and and it was good. Uh, you know, uh, you know, people all over LA came to see the plays there. Uh, that's where I won the Drama Critics Award for Fleur de Rear, and we did the last meeting of the Knights of the White Magnolia there, 
and some producers came to see it and loved it. Uh, and we moved it to an equity house to the Coronet Theater. They moved it to us, and then we ran for nine months at the Coronet, and I was making 80 bucks a week. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a that was a godsend. I went, oh, maybe I'm making eighty bucks a week acting. This is great. So it, it was a good, good, uh, good uh, theater to to do stuff, and you know, I got an agent out of it and things like that. I mean, you, you got some exposure at least doing the plays there, you know. Well, following on from uh, that movie, uh, you became a guest on a majority of well-known shows in the 70s, including uh, Kojak, Emergency, and one of my favourites, Columbo. And this was a trend of that many actors in the day did of doing the rounds on various shows. Now, sure. throughout the decade, you would appear on uh, many shows centred around the police, such as Police Story, Police Woman with Angie Dickinson, uh, Starsky mm-hmm. and Hutch, and even MASH as military police. At the time, were you deemed as the recognizable police archetype, or was it just something that you found a lot of joy in portraying? Well, uh, Starsky and Hutch, actually, I played two bad guys in in that. I did two Starsky and Hutches, and both of them I was the bad guy. And, you know, I'll I'll tell you the truth, there's not a whole lot of difference between being a cop and a bad guy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the funny thing is, I I won the Drama Critics Circle Award in 1973, and I got a call, and I was was bartending at a pool hall in L.A. at the time, in a very bad section of L.A., and, um, and a lot of cops hung out there. Um, uh, they were homicide detectives hung out there. So I got a call from my agent like two days after I won the Drama Critics Award. And, uh, and she said, you got an audition for Police Story, which was a pretty big hit at the time. And uh, uh, I said, oh, fantastic. And I thought, here's my career is going on. You know, I was making a buck and a quarter bartending at this pool hall, you know. So I go to the audition and it was two lines to play an ambulance attendant, you know? And I and I walked in, I said, I'm here for the audition and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, you know, and they gave me this one piece of paper with two lines. And I said, is this it? And they said, yeah. And I went, are you kidding me? And so anyway, I, I got offered the role and uh, I turned it down, you know? And uh, I said, I, I'm not going to do two lines. They can get a wino to do this. They don't need an actor. I mean, this is... <laughs> So uh, all the cops that hung out at the pool hall, and they were they were offering me, uh, I think, $175 for the day. It was one day's work. And uh, I said, I turned, I was turning it down, and all these cops kept telling me, you can't turn it down. You're making a buck and a quarter an hour here. It's 175 bucks for the day, which at that time, I was paying 85 bucks a month for a Murphy bed apartment in South Central Los Angeles. And, you know, I had no money. And they, and I said, wait a minute. Yeah, but, that, you know, this is not good. And, and I, uh, to tell you the truth, I regret it to this day because it, it kept happening, you know, and I kept turning it stuff down. It kept offering me these little. Uh, now, I got a, I did the Kojak and, uh, I, uh, it was kind of a strange experience doing that Kojak, and uh, and uh, uh, I started to lose a little um, desire to get into film uh, because of that experience, and um, and I just kind of went, "Is that all there is? Is this what it's all about?" And 
you know, I, I was kind of getting that, uh, what is that, Patty Page song? Is that all there is? And, and uh, anyway, a couple of weeks after that, I got offered a Columbo. And I, I went to do it. And I was supposed to shoot uh, this one scene with Peter Falk. And it was uh, it was the episode with Dick Van Dyke, and and I and I play a real estate guy that sells Dick Van Dyke the house that he murders his wife in and stuff. Anyway, so I have this one scene with Peter Falk. So I go to work, and I sat there till seven o'clock that night for twelve hours, and we never got to the scene. So uh, everybody was rapping and leaving, and I was packing my stuff up, and Peter came walking over to me. And he said, and he, we were going to shoot the scene the next day. And Peter came over to me and he said, Hey, uh, you, you want to rehearse this scene we got to do tomorrow? <laughs> and I went, yeah, that'd be great. So uh, we got up, just Peter and I, uh, and there was nobody there. There was a little light bulb on in the sound stage, and, uh, and I said, okay, you know, we start running the lines. And I said, well, how about if I do this? He's, yeah, 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 that'd be good. And then uh, then I'll do this, and then you do that. And, uh, yeah. and we rehearsed this thing for like 45 minutes. And I walked out, and I just, he reinstilled my faith in the whole business. And at the end of the shoot, uh, I walked over to Peter, and I asked him to, to sign my script to give me enough. And he said, wait a minute, you're a good actor. What do you want my autograph for? And I said, I have my own reasons, Peter. <laughs> and, and, and I never told him. And I, I have the script to this day. I saved that script. But Peter Falk reinstilled my whole faith in the business. And, and uh, I, loved, I loved him for it. Anyway. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. That's great. Towards uh, the end of the 70s, you appeared at least one superhero franchise under your belt. Uh, unfortunately, you were playing a, a Nazi henchman in the Wonder Woman series starring Linda Carter. Now, obviously, uh, this is 70s Hollywood. Uh, was there still a feeling of dread about playing a Nazi character on screen? Did you have any fears over the role uh, in accepting it? Actually, I never finished that show, uh, Wonder Woman. I, I worked, very funny, but I worked one day on the show... And then I got a call, and uh, they wanted me to uh, audition to do a screen test for a spinoff of Starsky and Hutch. Uh, it was called uh, Huggy Bear and the Turk. And, uh, <laughs> Brilliant. And it was uh, Huggy Bear is the character on Starsky and Hutch. Well, it was his, his spinoff, and it was to play his partner. <clears throat> so I had to do the screen test the same time I was shooting Wonder Woman, and I couldn't do both. And uh, I went to the director of Wonder Woman and I told him what my situation was. And I said, I have an opportunity to screen test to do a series, but I can't do it because I'm doing this. So so they recast it. And uh, so there's only one little bit of me in it. Uh, the, uh, they recast another actor to play play the rest of the show. And, and then I went and did the screen test, which was a disaster and the show never sold anyway. But... Uh, but he did give me the opportunity to at least go and give it a shot. So that's really cool. Yeah, they actually freed you up to do it. Yeah, because you don't yeah. get you don't hear many stories like that these days. Because everyone would just get contractual obligations thrown at them, wouldn't they? <clears throat> no, he was very very kind to me. But he said, "Look, you got a good shot, and I respect the fact that you're turning down a a positive job to for an iffy situation." And he respected me for that, and uh, and he gave me the opportunity, and I, I I thanked him heavily for it. So 
Uh, well, in 1979, uh, which was a very important year for me because it was when I was born, um, there was a major, <laughs> there was a major step for you as you appeared in both PT8's Great Cycling Movie Breaking Away, and landed a six-episode appearance in the incredibly popular Dallas. Now, this was a real move away from weekly episode appearances and into a character arc. Now, did you feel the character would run further than six episodes and would be a mainstay, or did you know that it was just going to be that from the outset? I didn't even know it was going to go six. I, I, I did the first one, and I just thought I was doing one show. And then, uh, you know, they brought me back and brought me back. And my, the, I, I was originally paired with Ed Nelson, uh, who was my partner, and then Ed didn't couldn't do this, the next one. So they got Sandy Ward to play my partner, and, and we ended up doing six episodes. And, uh, you know, I killed Tina Louise, and <laughs> then I go to jail and all that stuff. But And the, that that's a funny story. The night we shot the, the scene where I grabbed Tina Louise, and then she goes off the roof and, and dies. And, and uh, we were shooting on top of a roof uh, in Toluca Lake, and they had all these stones, these pebbles all over the top of the roof. Well, of course, you know, they got the stunt girl and you, you do your, your scene up to the edge and then they cut and then they do the long shot of the stunt girl going off the roof. And, and anyway, we get, we get ready to do the first take and I look over at Tina and I see her like breathing heavily and going, ah, ah, and I'm going, oh my gosh, she's, she's going to kill me. <laughs> All of a sudden, they say action, and she came flying at me, and I grabbed her, and we slipped on these stones, and we almost went over the roof. <laughs> and I said, Tina, this is acting. You're going to kill us, you know. Anyway, uh, those were fun. Uh, the Dallas things were, like I say, I thought I was just going to do one episode, and they kept extending it and extending it, and and uh, ended up doing, you know, Willie Willie Joe Gar for six episodes. So, uh, and it was fun. We shot the first one in Dallas, and then the rest of them in L.A. But uh, uh, Larry was uh, was a hoot to work with, and uh, had a great great crew. And strangely enough, when I did my series Hardball in '89, ten years later. We were opposite Dallas on Friday night, and Dallas was the number one show, and we 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 didn't have a chance against them, you know. That was in '89. I did my series Hardball on NBC, and they put us on Friday night against Dallas. And I said, "Come on, give us a, give us a chance here. Put us on Wednesday or something. Let us get an audience, you know." And Brandon Tartikoff, who was the head of NBC at the time, said, "You're my best show of the season. And I'm putting it in my toughest time slot." And, that was it. <laughs> well, funny enough, as we kind of move into the 80s, you were mixing TV, film, and stage work still, and you won the uh, Los Angeles Drama Logue Award for Outstanding Performance in 1981 for Sam Shepard's True West, which you starred on stage with Ed Harris right. at the South Coast Repertory Theatre. Now, did this really elevate your standing in the industry? Did it bring more attention for roles? Uh, it did and it didn't really, you know, because uh, it's a long story. But uh, anyway, we did that in 1981 and uh, Sam came to the final performance, which was kind of funny. Uh, you know, when you're doing a show in repertory, you have an end date and it doesn't matter how successful a show is. You know, the when the stop date is there, it's over and the next show comes in. 
So, and we were getting, uh, they were getting calls for box office for weeks after, but, you know, when the show's over, the show's over. But uh, Sam Sam came closing night, and uh, they told us he was in the audience. Well, they actually told us he was in the audience a couple of nights before, and he never was. But uh, we had known that the original production of True West was done. Joe Papp did it in New York uh, with uh, 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 Peter Boyle and Tommy Lee Jones, actually. And uh, Sam walked out on the show, and he told Joe Papp and never give him another play again you know whatever I don't know what happened but we we had read that uh anyway so uh, Sam was there closing night and it's kind of weird when you when you know that that history of the show and and all of a sudden Sam is out there and it's kind of like every line you would say you wanted to look out and say was that okay Sam <laughs> was that was that good Sam did you like that one or you know Anyway, we did a great show, and Sam came back stage after, and he loved the the show. And uh, I'll just go a little little bit ahead. I got Beverly Hills Cop through that production. Uh, a few years later, um, I got a call to go into Paramount, and uh, for a meeting, and I went in, and uh, I met this casting uh, person from New York, and she said, John. I'm going to tell you right now, there's nothing in this movie for you, but I saw your production of True West, and I just loved you and Ed's performance, and I just wanted to meet you. And uh, and I said, well, thank you very much. And and I think Mickey Rourke was doing Beverly Hills Cop at the time. Uh, but but she, she called me in and wanted to meet me because she had seen that production of True West. So in a way, yes, it did extend my my film career <laughs> well following stints on the cult series police squad which was uh, co-created and co-written by one of our previous guests david zucker uh what about my little keister um <laughs> and I, I watched that episode again last night because i didn't realize that john was the person in that scene and it is still hilarious. Oh, it's such a good episode is that the one with, with uh, Le- leslie nielsen yeah yeah Police? Oh, yeah, that was a hoot. That was a hoot. <laughs> you and uh, Robert Costanza. Bobby Costanza, yeah. Yeah, well, that was a fun thing to do. I mean, Leslie was great to work with. He was a lot of fun. Well, as well as that, you also had an appearance on the the legendary, now, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, and you land the role that catapulted you into Hollywood as Sergeant Tagger in Beverly Hills Cop. So you've already explained how this role came about, but how how were you reacting to getting such a big shot in Hollywood? Well, that's not quite true. I did Buckaroo Banzai after I did uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, Sack the researcher. Uh, <laughs> uh, Play my MPB. It lies. Well, you know, here I was, and I, I wanted to turn it down. I mean, I, I went in for the meeting, and it wasn't a very big role in the film. And, you know, here I am, and I, I was in the hottest movie of the year, and my agent sent me out for this small little role in this film, and, and I didn't under, you know I didn't want to do it, but uh, she talked me into doing it, so I did it. But uh, I actually did that after I did Beverly Hills Cop. And, and also the A-Team I did after Beverly Hills Cop. And I, I didn't want to do that either. I said, why are you sending me out on the A-team? I'm in the hottest movie of the year. I want to do another film. And anyway, uh, I did fire my agent, by the way. <laughs> 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 uh, 
So, so how did um, Beverly Hills Cup come around then? Well, like I was saying, uh, that that uh, casting director called me in, and I said, okay, it was nice to meet you, and I just kind of forgot all about it. It was it was really nice of her, you know, and she was wonderful. And and about three or four weeks later, I get a call and it said, uh, um, they want to see you for Beverly Hills Cop. And I said, I thought there was nothing in that for me. So anyway, I go to the meeting and and uh, the people are in the room and and they give me this one scene to read, which was the scene of me punching Eddie in the stomach, you know, and that that one scene there. So anyway, I, I, I read the scene. It's a one-page scene. I read it, and I forgot about it. And uh, three or four weeks later, they called, and they said, they want to see you for Beverly Hills Cop. And I said, I just did that, you know. So <laughs> I said, but I'll go in again. So I go in, and they give me the same scene to read. And I think Stallone was connected to the movie at that time. So I read the scene again, the one scene, and they said, thank you, and I don't hear anything for three or four weeks again. And then I get another call that says, they want to see you for Beverly, they want to see you for Beverly Hills Cop. And I went, what do you mean? I, so I said, okay. So I went in again, and now I think Eddie was involved. And so I read the same exact scene. So I had two more readings for that. And then finally, the fifth time or the sixth time, they called and they said, they want to see you for Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> you got to be kidding me! So it, it was it was the final uh, uh, pairing meeting. Uh, so I go into the to the office, and there was a I mean a, a hallway full of actors, and we we're all standing there. And uh, they came out and they said, "Okay, you, 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 you," and they were pairing people up, and it just so happened they paired Judge and I up. And they said, okay, you two read together, you know. So I said, okay. So uh, <laughs> Judge came over to me, and that's the first time we met. And he came over and he said, uh, oh, what would you think of the script? And I said, I don't know. I don't. I have no idea what this movie's about. I only read the one scene you know, every time I went in. And I said, I have no idea what this movie's about. <laughs> so he said, you haven't read the script? And I said, no, they never gave me a script. They gave me one page. So Judge went, oh, my God, you know, and he's like freaking out, you know. And I said, yeah, hey, don't worry about it. We'll just wing it, you know. So, so he goes, okay, you know. So we go into the office, and uh, now, you know, Marty and the producer, I mean, it's a room full of people. And uh, we were reading with another uh, a guy that was reading for the captain. It wasn't Ronnie Cox. It was somebody else. So we, we're doing this, and I'm just ad-libbing stuff. And finally, I look at the... The, the guy that's reading for the, the for the chief, or the lieutenant, rather. And I said, uh, can I talk to him for a minute? And he kind of went, okay. So I looked at, so I looked at, uh, I looked at Judge, and I said, give us a minute, would you? And, and Judge kind of went, oh, okay. And I looked at the captain, and I said, uh, can I get a new partner? Because this guy's a real fucking pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> So the, so the whole room cracked up laughing and <laughs> needless to say we got the we got the part you know so uh and and uh but but I just winged that whole audition I had no idea what the movie was about so I ended up getting it 
And then uh, uh, we got on the set, and and believe me, uh, the original script, Taggart and Rosewood were really kind of minor characters, you know. It, it, but Judge and I, Marty loved our chemistry and, and the way we interacted with one another, so he kept letting us ad-lib and throw stuff. And, of course, when you're working with Eddie, he starts ad-libbing and throwing stuff in. And so, I mean, we those characters kind of developed as as the shooting went on, you know. And we ended up being co-stars of the movie. And like uh, this one scene, it says, uh, Taggart and Rosewood wait in the car. And that's all it says. So we shoot it a couple ways, sipping coffee and looking up at the hotel window and, and blah, blah, blah. So Marty said, okay, we got that. We got that. Now you guys just fool around and, and you know, do something. <laughs> you know? And Marty really kind of just was like that. He said, you guys go do something now. So Judge happened to be reading a, a, a magazine in between takes. Uh, and so they said, okay, action. And the Judge picked up the magazine and he said, wow, you know by the time you're 50 years old, there's 12 pounds of undigested meat in your system? <laughs> And I said, well, why are you telling me that? What makes you think I have any interest in that at all? He goes, well, you eat a lot of meat, you know. And, I mean, and that was all ad lib stuff, you know. I honestly had no idea it doesn't come across as ad libbed in the film. It looks oh. absolutely scripted. That is great. No, we a lot of a lot of it was like that. I mean, and Eddie's whole uh, these guys are super cops and blah blah blah. That was all ad libbed. Eddie just. Ad lib that whole scene and and going over the wall that was all in, in, improvised <laughs> and uh, you know Marty just gave us the the room to to create and it was wonderful I mean I love Marty he, you know and and then he directed Midnight Run which we'll get to later but uh, I'll tell you that story too so anyway that that was Beverly Hills Cop I mean it was just one thing led to another and I just it just happened and thank God. It was it was a, a wonderful experience. Like you say, you, improvisation played a big part in the character's success. Uh, apparently, hundreds of takes were ruined from everyone laughing, including one scene uh, that makes it into the film where you're visibly trying to pinch yourself from prevent you from laughing during the right. Super Cops routine. Right. That was the one I was just telling you about, the Super Cops. That was all Adelaide. Eddie just kind of, we kind of, I can't remember the exact, written words but we we did it a little bit and then eddie kind of went wait a minute I'll, I'll be back in a minute and he he left and he came back and he says okay let's shoot it and then he starts doing all his super cop stuff and it was hysterical and you know we were trying not to laugh because it was it was it was funny so obviously you're saying that you and church were kind of given a bit of free reign to add comedy to these characters uh, they're very kind of akin to like laurel and hardy in some respects you know, especially with the scaling the wall sequence. And uh, how, how many times did you have to attempt to get over that wall? Uh, I think we only did it one or two times. I mean, and it was funny because Marty came over and he said, okay, uh, you guys uh, have a hard time getting over the wall. And I, honestly, the wall, would, the end of the wall was like three feet away. And I said to Marty, I said, why don't we just go around the wall? It's right there. I mean, we just go around the wall. And, he, and Marty said, no, that's not funny. He said, you guys try to get over the wall. And that's all he said. So I said to the judge, hey, remember when we were kids and I put my hands in there and, and you put your foot up there? And, and he said, okay. And they yelled action and we just did it. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't remember doing it more than one or two times. 
it was just, uh, you know, and they had a handheld camera and they kept following us and me grabbing the tree and falling and doing all that stuff. And But yeah, that it was another case of Marty just going, you guys just do something. You know, I mean, he gave us free reign. He was wonderful. He gave us free reign to create our characters. It was it was wonderful. So, uh, just out of curiosity, which scene do you think that you just probably did the most takes of? Just playing out with different ideas. Oh boy, uh, Marty. Well, Marty's famous for you know doing fifteen or twenty takes. I mean, you know he'll he'll get it after the first three or four takes, and he goes, "Okay, we got that now. Let's fool around and have fun." And then you know he'll he'll do another ten takes, you know. So uh, most of the time we did a lot of takes. So I can't remember one particular one that we did more than any others. And I have a story of Midnight Run about Marty's takes, but uh, uh, he drove Yafet Koto nuts and <laughs> doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Yafet was not crazy about doing all those takes. <laughs> But it worked out, and I'll tell you when we get to that. When you were working on the movie, did you expect it to be as big as it ended up becoming? No. uh, You know, to me, it was just another job, you know, and I was just trying to do my job, you know. And actually, I was finishing a little independent thing uh, before we started shooting Beverly Hills Cop. I I mean, while we... The first scene I did in Beverly Hills Cop... uh, was the strip joint scene with Judge and Eddie and me. And uh, and I was doing looping voiceovers on, the, on a film that I was just finishing. So after that, shot that scene, I had to go that night, like midnight that night, to do looping on this other film. So, uh, no, you know, when I first started, I mean, I, I kind of approach every job that way. I don't, you know, I don't think of awards or... Uh, you know, success uh, or failure. I, I just do my job, you know, and hopefully it'll come out good. You know, even halfway through it, I, you know, and everybody was like raving, oh man, this is going to be a big hit. And I go, well, okay, great. I don't know. I, I'm just trying to do my job. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't, I don't really think about that. It amazes me that, you know, actors even put that in their head. Oh, this is going to be a hit or I'm going to know a word for this or, I mean, that's not my thinking at all. I'm trying to create a character and do my job. That's, And then, uh, you know, I, when they say it's a rap, I go play golf. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just want to say one thing. Uh, that scene, is the strip club scene, is apart from the obvious, um, is actually my favorite scene simply because there's that wonderful moment between Taggart and uh, Foley when Taggart kind of realizes no fool, he's actually telling the truth about this one. And he kind mm. of takes that little leap of faith to trust him when he right. realizes, okay, things are going down. And I really, really love that little moment between the two of you. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was a nice moment. You know, and, and that Eddie and I had just met that day, you know, and Judge and I, other than the audition, didn't know one another. So that was the first time we all got together and it just, it just happened. I mean, it's it's really amazing sometimes when you can get on a set and just connect with that other actor immediately, you know, and uh, that's the way it was with Eddie. I mean, we just clicked right off the bat, and um, you know, it was a, it was a fun scene. You know, it was a fun scene to do, and and uh, you know that the thing about comedy to me, uh, and and I and 
I, I look at comedy now and I, I don't I don't understand a lot of it. But I think it's funnier when you play a situation straight and the situation is funny. That's what makes it funny. Yeah. Mm. And not and not trying to be funny makes it funny. When you're when you're playing a funny situation dead straight, then it's funny to me. I mean, in Midnight Run, we never played for laughs. We played it straight, and the situation made it funny. We used to call that putting a lampshade on your head humor in, in theater school, you know. And I, I see a lot of comedians now. Uh, they just put funny things on their head and make funny faces, and they think they're funny, and that's not funny to me. You know, I mean, I the straighter you play the situation, and the situation is ridiculous, that makes it funny to me. So we we played that that if you recall watching that scene, we played it dead straight, mm. and we got we got strippers behind us and all this wacky stuff going on, and we were playing it straight, which to me makes it funny. I don't know, that's just me. Uh, one one little side note here, just a question that I I have to ask because we have had some people sending some comments in that you were uh, coming on the show. Uh, oh, one person says, "How many?" <laughs> oh, I hope they're nice have... comments. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> but uh, one question here: How many times have you and Judge been presented with bananas at comic conventions? Oh man, it, it's funny. Judge and I do some comic cons together. You know, we did one in Edinburgh and in London. We did one in in, uh, in Germany, and it, it's funny. People come up at the comic cons with these plastic bananas and want to sign them. It's kind of it's kind of funny actually. <laughs> And that's for some reason that's a that's a funny bit, you know, the banana in the tailpipe. And to tell you the truth, I'll give you a little inside scoop. In the script, it was a potato in the tailpipe. In the script, <laughs> and Eddie said, "No, I think a banana's funnier," you know. And he he was right. He was right. But in the script, it was a potato in the tailpipe, and uh, Eddie Eddie switched it to a banana, and and that's funny, you know. So yeah. he wasn't wrong. wrong. He, he wasn't no, wrong he wasn't. at all. Wow. No, he, he, he wasn't wrong very often, I'll tell you that. Well, funny enough, the, the first time that I think we kind of met in person was at that Edinburgh Comic Con, where uh, my friend uh, James Meakin of James Meakin Joinery, hi James, free plug, uh, he actually travelled 200 miles with a real banana in his pocket to come and get a picture with the both of you. <laughs> was that a banana in his pocket, or was he just happy to see him? <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't get the picture because they didn't take card and he didn't bring any cash, so he couldn't afford to get the picture. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. So well, uh, next next time I come back to Edinburgh, I'll sign it. So Okay, John. <laughs> well, if you say a quick hello to James Meekin, I'm sure he'll be happy. Hi, James. How are you? I'll, I'll sign your banana, and I don't mean that in a sexual way. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's just... That's just shattered his dreams. <laughs> okay. okay, well, following the success of Beverly Hills Cop, you continue to appear in both TV and various movies, uh, including the, the infamous King Kong Lives, which we were chatting about yesterday. Woo! Uh, yeah. <laughs> but then you take uh, a more grounded role in the John Hughes-produced Some Kind of Wonderful, which some claim is the last great movie of the Hughes 80s legacy. You know, at the same time, you're also appearing in another Hughes production of She's Having a Baby. 
these were both far departures from the roles that you currently take in. How was joining the Hughes family? Well, John was a big fan of mine, you know, and I, I mean, and I loved John. I mean, I, I got along great. I, I actually did three movies. Uh, I did Some Kind of Wonderful and She's Having a Baby. And I think I, I mentioned before, we shot those simultaneously, one in Chicago and one in L.A., and I was going back and forth. on. But I, I also did uh, um, uh, Curly Sue, right. I, I did a little cameo, and that's the way John is, you know. He, he called me and he said, would you do a little cameo in Curly Sue? And I said, sure, and I flew to Chicago and I worked on it one day and went out and had dinner with John and, uh, you know, he does that. And then uh, I, I can't remember after she's having a baby, uh, trains, planes, and automobiles, he had Kevin Bacon do a little cameo in that in the beginning of the movie. So mm, yeah. I mean, he that's the way John is. He loved to have you come in and do little cameos. And then, you know, uh, he, he was wonderful. And, <laughs> and she's having a baby. Uh, John and I were out having dinner and, uh, and, uh, the next day they were shooting a scene and he was telling me the scene they were going to shoot. And he said, uh, yeah, it's a scene, uh, where Kevin comes back to the house and he looks in the window and he sees his, his baby and, and, uh, he gets all guilt and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you know, the scene I'm talking about yeah. where he comes and looks in the house. So I said to John, I said, why don't you shoot the scene at Christmas time? Where he comes in and sees the tree, and he's not there, and blah, blah, blah. and John went, "That's it. That's the way I'm shooting it, and that's the way he shot it." So that was my one con- other contribution to to she's having a baby is that that Christmas scene. That was my idea. So uh, anyway, I thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> but John was very receptive like that, and and John was also known as the the king of the reels. Um, in those days, we had film. We didn't have digital stuff, and uh, he he would literally go through a whole whole uh, a magazine, and he would just and he wouldn't yell cut. He'd say, "Do it again, do it again, do it again," and he just let the camera keep running and running and running until the film ran out. Then they'd reload, and he'd say, "Okay, run it." He was he was fun to work with, John. Uh, you know, God bless him, but he he was a, he was a terrific guy. I know what some of you were thinking, where is the rest of this interview? Well, you can catch the rest of our deep dive into John Ashton's very impressive career next week where we start talking about Beverly Hills Cop 2 and Midnight Rum, amongst other things. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, we will. So, I don't know why I don't know what you want me to add to that. I think you covered that really well. I, I don't know if you were trying to get me to segue or some kind of shit, but you know, I I, I just don't have that energy. You know, just <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm leeching off your batteries right now. Are you? Right, well, okay yes. then. In that case, let's hurry this thing along and get on to the point where we have to nominate five. Now's the time to nominate five. Nominate five? Yes, nominate five. Not three, or four, or six, or nine. Now's the time to nominate five. Well, that worked. I'm going to zap you with a pair of those paddles that they used to restart hearts in hospitals in a minute. <laughs> you mean defibrillators, Steve? You call them whatever you want. Okay. I'll okay. call them I... those paddles I... that you get in hospitals. <laughs> Not those paddles you get at that certain place you go with the women in leather. They're different kinds of paddles. Anyway. What's... <laughs> You can tell this was not recorded on the same day as the interview, can't you? Oh, no. Um, yeah. All right. Well, what's nominate five? 
Okay, well, nominate five is the part of the show where we get our guest, if we have one, to nominate five of a given thing. Well, this week, as you might be noticing, at this point of the show, we have no guest because the second part of John's interview and his nominate five is going to be next week. So that just leaves us, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Us all on our lonesome, trying to figure out what to do as a nominate five. And because I haven't bothered, I'm guessing Steve's got something in for me. Yay. I have, actually. And it came to mind when I was playing uh, a Enter the Matrix game recently. Replaying it. Oh, my it. God. I know. Wow. Uh, with the fourth Matrix film coming out, I've been going back and trying to play the old games. And I realized that with Enter the Matrix, I must have bought that about four or five times on PC, on Xbox, on the GameCube. And so this is one for you, Andy. Name me five movies that you have bought repeatedly across various formats. Oh, so we're talking VHS, DVD, Blu-ray... Laserdisc, Betamax, anything that you want. Okay, well, I'm going to leave out Laserdisc and Betamax because I was never really into buying on them. Oh, digital so, as well, so I suppose that's a format. So Okay, okay, and digital. I guess you can kind of call it that. Wow, okay, uh, let me think. Okay, well, that, that's relatively easy. And I'm not going to use the same movies that, obviously, I brought up in the last Nominate 5 because it's obvious I'm going to have them across all mediums. Mm-hmm. So I'll go for ones that I haven't. Well, okay, I guess I've got to start at number five because we're going to get this countdown right this week, hopefully. Um, I'm going to start at number five with uh, 1986's Transformers the movie. Oh, yes, good choice. I've um, got so that across a couple myself. You can't not miss it. I, I will give the, the background on this. that This is actually also the first movie I ever went to the cinema to see. Twice in one week. <laughs> right, which is brilliant because uh, my dad took me once and then I completely lied that I hadn't seen it for my uncle to go and take me <laughs> two days later. And I got to see the film twice in that first week. And it was awesome. And no matter what everyone said, everyone said, oh my God, you know, it's a bad movie. No, it's not. It's a great film. It's not. It's the best Transformers movie that's ever been made. Although it does kind of, the animation in it veers wildly between absolutely exceptional to what the fuck is going on with Ultra Magnus's chest. (laughs) It's true. If you haven't seen it, there's this weird bit where Ultra Magnus gets like the the Matrix of Leadership, which is this orb that he keeps inside his chest. And the way that it's animated, he kind of, his chest opens up, then he puts it into his chest, takes his hands away. And then he just kind of brings it back in, readjusts it, and everything closes. And he's like, you're looking at you thinking, that looks goddamn awful. It looks awful. To be honest, I honestly thought that he had just forgotten how to close his chest. Because that's the way it looks in that cartoon. It's like he, he puts this matrix of leadership or whatever it was yeah. uh, into his chest, and then it's just hanging there. And then suddenly he just readjusts it, and then suddenly it all closes. <laughs> but... Uh, the thing about Transformers the movie, it's like this weird mishmash of so many different versions of that movie that they just piece together, mm-hmm. which is why you suddenly get very weird instances of characters showing up in a shot that aren't actually in that scene. We're looking at you, Snarl. Yeah. S- Snarl the missing Stegosaurus. That's a movie in itself. Sounds like it should be like a, a kid's movie made in the early 90s with a puppet Snarl. Yeah, like like Clifford the Big Red Dog. Yeah, something like that. 
Snarl the dumbass dinosaur who couldn't even make it into his own movie. Hold on though, wasn't wasn't Snarl called Slag in the no. US? <laughs> you slag. <laughs> no, that's I'm I'm sure that he was called no, Slag no. in the US. Oh, this is where I'm, I'm seriously going to be the, the complete nerd. Obviously, Slug was the Triceratops, right? Yeah. Okay. Snarl's a Stegosaurus. Oh, shit. Yeah, I'm getting my dinosaurs confused. Yes. You, you've completely messed up your Dinobots. Yeah. Which will have people written in. We'll, we'll get letters. Yes. It's about bloody time. <laughs> yes. Someone has to. Yeah. Um, getting back to it. Yes. Transformers, the movie I have owned on VHS from Video Gems. Yeah. I remember you. Uh, on DVD, I owned the Artificial Eye one, and then the two-disc collector's version on DVD. And obviously, I bought uh, the all-singing, all-dancing Blu-ray edition. And to be honest, still the best-looking version of that movie was the VHS version. Yeah, but was it Letterbox or Pan and Scan? It, it was. It was Pan and Scan, but it was the more that it got cleared up with DVD the more the animation was highlighted as being shoddy in some places. Yeah. But I still want to see that full uncut version, which has even more gratuitous robot death in it. Yeah. Release the insert director's name cut here. <laughs> was it Nelson Shin? I think it was Nelson I, Shin. That rings a bell. Yeah, that sounds like it should be about that. Yeah. Yeah, but no, I'm the same. I had it on VHS. Um, I've got the, the two-disc one, which came in a tin. Um, on DVD, and uh, I got given the Blu-ray one a couple of years ago for for Christmas. So yeah, nice. That, that, that's a good present to open on Christmas Day. Oh yes. So it's like sod the Bond movie, sod you Queen, sod the Snowman. Time for some robot death. All right then. Yeah. What is your number four? Number four. Uh, I guess I'm going to have to go with Reservoir Dogs. Okay. This is a very weird one because I actually saw this at the cinemas. <laughs> A very long time ago. How? Because you're only like about, what, eight months older than I am? Yeah, yeah maybe? It's, it's very true, but you can get into a cinema if you look old enough. And as a teenager, I did look pretty old for my age. And plus, the person that we knew, his dad actually owned the cinema. So we, we kind of got away with that one. But I saw this, what felt like years before it came out on VHS. And that's that's true, because... It didn't come out straight away in the UK for a while. I think it was 94 mm. that it came out. And obviously Reservoir Dogs was 93? I think it might have even been later than that because I remember it coming out when I was in uh, college. Yeah, it was among those movies like The Exorcist and Natural Born Killers, Clockwork Orange, all of these movies that were banned previously and they got released much later. And I think Reservoir Dogs may have been on that list, may have been one of the last movies on that list. Mm. I actually owned an X-Rental VHS copy. X-Rentals, no one knows what they are anymore. But trust no. me, when video stores used to just want to sell off their stock, uh, I was there buying shitloads of it. And I got, <laughs> I can remember the bulk. I got three that day. It was Reservoir Dogs for seven quid. I remember it well. Highlander 3 for 9 quid, which is shocking to even remember. And Interview with the Vampire for 7 quid. Uh, so yeah, I got all of them in this kind of bulk. Uh, but yeah, Reservoir Dogs. And then on DVD when it first got released, which was the very bare bones version, I got the bare bones version. 
And then when the two disc special edition came out, I bought that. And yes, I now own it on DVD as well. You know, I even had the soundtrack. I had the posters. I had a, I had a very weird phase of absolutely loving a Reservoir Dogs. That's a on, great film. Until I saw City on Fire and felt betrayed. What? Because Tarantino nicked everything. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah but I, um, I'm the same. I actually had this in different box sets. I had the VHS one, which is uh, in a box set. It was the smaller of the two because you used to get one which had like a briefcase. This one had a couple of badges and some stickers for K Billy Superstowns of the seventies, and a Joe Cabot's Little Black Book. So it had uh, telephone numbers in there for like Mister White and so on. And if you called it, it got through to a like a recorded message. For, oh, I don't, right. Okay. Yeah, but by the time I actually got hold of it, I think all the numbers had been discontinued. But then I got that later on DVD, and it's in it's a two disc one, but it's in like a little tin that looks like a uh, gasoline can and then the actual DVDs are in a cardboard sleeve that looks like a book of matches so right okay yeah. alright oh, that's interesting yeah okay um, what are we up to three? number three number three hmm alright yeah um, I'll go with this one it would be Akira now this is actually kind of weird because this is three for three of movies that you've bought that I've actually seen and not ones that I have shown you either. These are ones you have actually seen. Yeah, Akira is f***ing amazing. It is, <laughs> it is. It is just beautiful. Do you want to know something? I actually watched the Blu-ray of it, I think it was only about four weeks ago. Um, I was actually laying in bed and I thought, oh, you know what, I haven't seen this in so long. I'm actually going to put this on. And um, it is just so good. It, mm. it just is still like the, the highlight, one of the highlights of anime all time it really is just an incredible piece of work that is gets more and more relevant as the years go on yeah. and um, when I first discovered this film it was back in the 80s when it got advertised on a channel 4 TV show uh, they showed a little sequence from the movie and it was something to do with computer games, and I think it was talking about cyberpunk and stuff like that. And around that time in Japan, it was like the biggest movie in Japan. And it wasn't available in the UK. It, it didn't become available in the UK until 1992. It had been released on video before manga video came out. Yeah, it was like okay. one of the forefront of it, what, that yeah. whole kind of anime wave that swept the, the UK in the early to mid-90s. Yeah, I think it was released on a video label called Island Video or something like that, uh, that had kind of picked it up. And I saw it on the shelf, and I want to say it was something like Martin McCall's in, I think it was Crew, and it had like the VHS section, which any time, if there was a shop with a video section, I'd go into it just to see what had come out. You know, before the days of the internet, you were often surprised by titles just appearing. Mm. You know, which is how you got fooled into those director video sequels that had nothing to do with the original, but they just slapped the name on it. You like know, Highlander too. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Russell. I'm sorry. But, um, yeah, uh, and originally I was going to buy something else. I think I was going to buy uh, a movie called Leviathan which had Peter Weller in it, and oh, I was yes, purposely I one, yeah. going to get it. And Gillian edited that movie, by the way. Yeah. I, I, will, I will put that on there. Um, and I saw Akira there, and I was like, holy shit, it, it's finally out. 
I have searched for this movie for the better part of like six years or something. What well, it felt like it's probably four. Um, and I bought it straight away. Twelve ninety nine. It's weird that I can still remember the exact prices of all of these VHSs I bought. And uh, I got home and put it on straight away. And my mind was just blown. Absolutely blown by it. Uh, so naturally, years later when it was released on DVD in the two-disc edition, which actually featured the voice version from back then, the Island release version, and the updated version that Manga Video did, because mm-hmm. it was two different audios. Cam Clark did one of them, which was the original one. And yeah, and I recently bought it on DVD, uh, uh, on Blu-ray as well. And uh, it's it's never looked better. Honestly, the conversion is incredible. The, in, the intense work that has gone into making that film still retain it being a classic. Um, yeah, Akira all the way. Yeah, I, I have to agree with that. I, I think the first time I saw it, it was on channel four sometime in like the late 90s and it was just kind of i can't even say i was just flicking through channels i think i've been watching a a video or something and then was just looking through what was on the the four channels at the time (laughs) only four and then this this thing was on and i was like what the hell am i watching here and then i think i think i started watching just before the motorbike sequence um, yes which was still fairly near the beginning of the movie by the end of it i was just there open mouth going i've never seen anything like this before in my life and the funniest astonishing the funniest thing is is um also when i went to film school in staffordshire there was a module there where you basically ended up watching a movie every week and then having a, a discussion about it and the animation week they showed akira and it was the first time i'd seen it on the big screen mm-hmm. oh it's Fabulous, and none of these other like kids in there had seen this movie or heard of it. And me being able to sit there and just see the reactions of these people, and some people complaining that it was too violent, and I was like, "Haha, welcome that. to the world, bitches!" <laughs> Great soundtrack as well to it. Yes, I still have yeah. that soundtrack to this day on CD. Yeah. So okay then, so that was number three. So we got two more to go. So what's number two? Oh, two more to go. It's weird in talking about it. I haven't even thought about it, so I'm literally going whatever jumps into my head. Uh, and I'm going to go as number two, correct? Uh-huh. Gremlins. <laughs> right. Laugh all you want. No, Gremlins I, I love Gremlins. is the greatest movie ever made for the longest time. That is my Christmas movie of choice. Every year, Gremlins is going on, usually on Christmas Eve. Uh, that That is the quintessential... A Christmas movie for me. I remember seeing it as a kid on VHS when it came out for rental, and I I just fell in love with this movie because it was terrifying to a kid. Oh god, yeah. I think it was on TV a few times, and I never made it further than about halfway through for ages. You know, just up to, up to the bit where Billy goes back to the school, and it's uh, killed the, um, the the teacher. That yeah. is that is as far as I ever managed to get for ages. Oh my god, it is such a, a, a sinister movie for the first half of it until suddenly it all becomes like jokes and laughing and suddenly they're singing Christmas carols and stuff like that. Then the comedy kicks in. Yeah. But before that, it is so tense and scary. Um, so yes, uh, when the opportunity, I got that on VHS for Christmas, mm-hmm. uh, which, funnily enough, 
Uh, so naturally that went on on Christmas Day. And got turned off five minutes later. <laughs> yes. When, when the classic Warner Brothers uh, DVD came out that was bare bones, not even a trailer, and your special features consisted of it being in different languages. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, And scene got, selection. And scene selection. That, that's not a special feature, but we'll go with it. So yes, I got that. I also got an imported version of the special edition that came out on DVD with Judge Reinhold in a safe um, and the audio commentary. Yeah, um, I got that version of it and I bought it on Blu-ray as well. And I absolutely love Gremlins. It is the the one of the greatest 80s movies ever, but one of the greatest movies of all time in my view. Yeah, I, I really enjoy that movie, but I've got to be honest, I actually prefer Gremlins 2 more mainly because the the sense of humor and just the sheer insanity that just goes on in every single scene speaks to me a lot more than the than the first one did and it's like looking at a living breathing looney tunes cartoon throughout most of it and i adore that i've got to admit but i'm always going to swing towards the first one as my favorite out of the two of them okay so all right so that was gremlins this is four for four on movies that i've seen so let's see number one what is number one i'd be very shocked if you hadn't have seen the the number one um, I am going to go with an American werewolf in London. <laughs> I haven't actually seen it. Oh, you absolute tar! I've <laughs> I've seen the I've seen the end. Well, that's no good. Um, but I've not seen the whole thing. No. Okay, American Werewolf in London. Ruined the first it, time I saw it was actually on the Sci-Fi Channel at midnight. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Sci-Fi Channel, when it wasn't an all-day thing, it used to only run from something like 8 o'clock at night till 2 or 3 in the morning when it first started. And actually, I jumped on it from the first day that it came on and Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan was on it. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm watching this channel. And I've well, got anime as well. But one night, uh, it was just on, and then they advertised American Werewolf in London as being the movie. So it's like, okay, actually, I, I do want to see this because uh, I've never seen it. I've only seen pictures of it, so let's sit down and watch it. And my God, it, I was so engrossed all night. A mixture of finding it hilarious, finding it absolutely bloody terrifying. Uh, it was just perfect. The perfect night to watch it with like no lights on, just sat downstairs watching it on TV. And I would not go to bed until it's finished. So after I'd watched it, I went and bought it on VHS for five ninety nine. Uh the next day. God, you do remember all these prices, don't you? It's very scary how I do remember these prices now going back. Um, especially when it was on video. I can't remember how much I paid for them on DVD. Well, just, just a side note before you move on. Do you remember when pretty much every single VHS tape that came out? $9.99. yeah. Yeah. That was it. Set price, nine ninety nine, And then they started messing with it all. Yeah, and then the prices went from nine ninety nine, oh ten ninety nine, or twelve ninety nine, and some of them are fifteen ninety nine if you want a widescreen copy. Yeah, the weirdest um, ones though were when you went into HMV and it was something stupid like about twenty five quid. Yeah, randomly, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Now you can go to the pound shop and just you know buy a DVD for a quid. It's very weird, but um, yes, uh, I went to buy it from Forefront Video, which was. A range of cheaper videos that you could get for five ninety nine, but I found a copy of it and I was like, "Oh, I don't care. I'm having it." Yeah, and I love just, I love the days of VHS more than anything. Even though it was all pan and scan, um, mm. just something about that physical media of a VHS tape was amazing. 
Uh, I'm just praying to God it doesn't get chewed up as soon as you press play. There was the, I think it was the 25th anniversary edition that came out on DVD. And straight away I bought that and uh, I loved it. And funnily enough, on Blu-ray, Bill Daly gave me his copy. Oh, yes, I seem to remember. You you got it when you went over there last, didn't you? Yes, he basically had a bunch of Blu-rays that he was clearing out, and he says, take uh, whatever you want. So I was like, oh, shit, I'll just take them all. <laughs> no, I, I, I took a, a bunch of them. Um, I, I remember I asked him to watch Drive, uh, the movie with Ryan Gosling. I don't think he enjoyed it because that was in the pack of Blu-rays. <laughs> <laughs> If ever if ever I want a movie and I think that Bill Daly's going to hate it, I'll say, oh, you'll love it, buy it. You'll go and buy it. He doesn't want it and he'll just give it to me. There you go. <laughs> but no, uh, he gave me his uh, American Wealth London. I was like, oh, can you seriously get rid of this? But yeah, I'll, I'll definitely have that. So I've owned that across all mediums. I'm sure there's hundreds of others that I have done that with, um, but they're the ones that immediately jumped out at me for this Nominate 5. Okay. So. Well, yeah, like I say, it's a rather unusual Nominate 5 this week, but going for the future, if you've got any ideas for Nominate 5s for us to do when we don't have a guest on, then just go over to facebook.com forward slash bodywood or hit us up over on Twitter at bodywood and just let us know. Yeah, yeah, do that. Do that. Uh, But I guess that just means that we've only got one question left to ask, don't we? No, we haven't. What? Well, usually at this point, we always ask if something's going on or whatever. We have a bit of a promotional bit. All right. Is something going on? Well, uh, I went to uh, my first time on camera the other day. Bloody hell. I know. How much well, was the lens a... replacement? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm not even going to go into that. But yes, Blue Caribou Productions, Joanne and Abby, we know them very well. Yes, uh, we do. Hi, girls. Hello, girls. Uh, They both uh, jumped in to kind of help on this uh, US-based project that we're doing on a bit of uh, promotional material. So I just want to say a huge thank you for their professionalism and coming in. And for all of you out there who are looking for either your music video filming, your corporate video filming and all stuff like that, Blue Caribou Productions, uh, Joanne Parker, Abby Kerwin, give them a call. There you go. There we go. So, is, is is that it then? No, yeah, that's, that's what's going on. I've got a funeral this week, if you want to talk about that. No, so no. Let's, let's just go for what's in the box instead. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? genuinely flummoxed then as to how to respond to that. I was kind of hoping you were going to come up with a great segue for what's in the box, but you didn't go for it. <laughs> Humour is my way of dealing with it, alright? So, alright, fair enough. You know, and, and to be honest, it would have been absolutely perfect bookend for that day you came out to me the other week with that that's what your mother said line and instantly you felt like a complete asshole. Yeah. But yeah, I couldn't I help but laugh because the, as soon as you said it you could hear it like I really shouldn't have said that. I'm yeah, sorry. it's it's something in case you're wondering that's something that started off ages ago when we were together and drunk. We just started imagining <laughs> Chewbacca just like everything that Han Solo said was just responding with like that's what your mother said. 
You came in that thing? You're braver than I thought. That's what your mother said. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was absolutely hilarious on the night, and it was like, why the hell didn't we actually record this for the podcast? But yeah. yes, ever since then, um, we've always found a way to kind of fit it into the conversation. And uh, as some of you may know, my mother passed away uh, the other day. And the first day Steve talks to me afterwards, because he was like, I'll, I'll give you a call. How are you doing? When you're ready to talk, have a chat. So he gives me a call and, and we're briefly just like touching on it and, and saying, you know, how are you doing, etc. And then we just get into regular conversation about stuff. And, and I say something and straight away he goes, ah, that's what your mother said. And, oh, shit. I really shouldn't have said that. No. I'm so sorry. No. But it was, I, I was really laughing about it. I wanted the earth to <laughs> swallow me up. Right. Well, I got you back with that bouncy castle anyway. Yes, you did. Of which you can see on all of the social media pages. Bodywood. Yes. <laughs> Watch Steve go down like a bag of cooks on a bouncy castle. Yeah. <sighs> Two overweight middle-aged men trying to mess around on a kid's bouncy castle. It doesn't end well. Uh, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> this has gone on for a bit longer now. Um, but uh, yes, what's in the box? Um, now this is the part of the show where Andy tries to get me away from playing video games and actually gets me sat down in front of some decent cinema. He's going to reach into a box full of movies that are certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and pull one out. If I haven't seen it, then I go away and watch it the night before we record our next show. If I have seen it, then we keep pulling out titles until we find one that I haven't seen. So, delve into the box, Andy, and let's see what you can pull out for me. Okay, first one here, you must have seen it. There's there's no way you couldn't have. Well, you've said that before. I know, you do constantly surprise me. It's Disney's animated version of Aladdin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I went okay. to the cinema to see that. I did too, actually, funny enough. That Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. You know, I think it was about 10 or 11 at the time. I thought they were brilliant. Cool. Yeah, You went to the golden, the second golden age of Disney there. Yeah. Okay, uh, I have uh, Sean Penn's movie Into the Wild. It's ringing a bell. No, that's a hunchback in Notre Dame. Yeah, that was yeah. Okay, no, I don't think I have seen Into the Wild. Okay, it does well, ring a in- bell though? But uh... okay, well, Into the Wild is two thousand seven film, and it's about the, it's a true story of Christopher McCandless. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's uh, the guy who infamously abandoned all his possessions, uh, gave his entire savings account to charity, and he hitchhiked to Alaska to live in the wilderness. Oh yes, no, I know this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it, but I know the story. Yeah. Okay, well, you'll enjoy that. And uh, that is going to be your review for next week. Yes, I'm going to watch a, an idiot kill himself because he decided that he was going to live on tree bark and beaver pits. <laughs> Back to the beaver jokes. <laughs> Some people pay good money for that. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, that... Tune in next week to hear how Steve got along with that movie. Plus, we've got the second part of our John Ashton interview, which is uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, it's time on Beverly Hills Cop 2. Uh, it's time on Midnight Run. And there's so many great stories from yeah. it. Uh, but between now and then, you look after yourselves. And it's a goodbye from me. And I've already gone. <laughs> Oh,
what your mother said.